Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Kim Holmes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. It's really a pleasure and honor to have all of you here this afternoon, also with our special guest, Senator Rubio, who will be here shortly. We live in uh, some pretty interesting times. We are clearly witnessing a massive campaign in this country to uh, rebrand socialism. You see it in Congress. You see it all over social media. Uh, it has been going on for decades uh, in the academic world. And yet facts are stubborn things. And we have an inescapable fact happening right here in our own hemisphere. Over the last two decades, a socialist dictatorship has wreaked havoc in Venezuela. Government corruption and failed economic policies have destroyed a once thriving nation. The country is literally falling apart. There are soaring levels of debt combined with inflation rates of over 100,000%. A worthless currency has led to consumer prices rising to above 1.3 million percent in 2018 alone. And 90% of Venezuelans live in poverty, and there are severe shortages of food and medicine. Now, why is this happening? Well, it's not happening because of capitalism. It's not happening because of the free market. According to the Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom, Venezuela is now one of the most ec economically repressed countries in the world, with a score that was nosediving from 56 when Chavez took office in 1999 to 26 in 2018. Venezuela is now ranked second to last after Cuba and only before North Korea on the Index of Economic Freedom. It's a near textbook example of what happens when a country tries to impose socialism on its people. The sad thing is, is that the victims of this oppression are not only Venezuelans. Over three million Venezuelans have fled the country, which has sparked a Latin America's largest refugee crisis. This number far exceeds the number of North Africans and Middle Easterners who have sought refuge in France, Germany, and Sweden combined. Neighboring Colombia has resettled more than 1.1 million Venezuelans, stressing the country's limited resources. While Venezuelans starve, Maduro's regime has enriched itself by trafficking drugs throughout Latin America and into the United States, often colluding with violent cartels that have left a high body count in their trail. He and his cronies have turned Venezuela into an international drug trafficking hub. Now, getting the United States government to address Venezuela's crisis has been a top priority for the Heritage Foundation. Our analysts 
have testified before Congress and authored numerous policy studies to this effect. They have hosted former political prisoners and leading opposition figures that are now part of the administration of interim President Juan Guaido. There is no doubt that Venezuela deserves a return to freedom. Alongside over 50 countries, including the majority of Latin America, the United States is working to make this happen. And that is why we have and we are thrilled to host Senator Marco Rubio to talk about Venezuela. As chairman of the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, he has led congressional efforts on the United States policy towards Venezuela. Joining him on stage today is Dan Twining, the president of the International Republican Institute, who will be introducing the senators. So please join me in welcoming Senator Rubio. Delighted to have all of you here. I'm going to be very brief. Uh, you all know who Senator Marco Rubio is. He's really our foremost freedom champion in the Congress. Uh, he has lived it in so many ways. Uh, he sits on all the relevant committees. Uh, he has been a voice for the aspirations of people struggling for freedom and democracy all over the world for a long time. Uh, he's a great champion of American leadership in the world, values-based leadership. And Senator, we're just delighted to have you here. He's also on the IRI board, um, so thank you for that too. Uh, Senator Rubio, uh, how did we get here? Venezuela was the richest country in South America. Uh, enormous assets, a rich human population. Uh, now we have three million refugees, 90% of people are hungry. What happened? Well, first of all, I'm not a fan of, of socialism, and I know this organization is not either, but I think this goes well beyond a flawed economic theory. Uh, the Maduro regime is best understood not as a government, but as a criminal enterprise, akin to what you see in organized crime rings. In essence, you have a godfather, the head, and Maduro, and then you have all these individual capos that he allows uh, concessions. So in a you know, when we had crime, when a crime family, one guy controls the loan sharking, one guy has the drugs, one guy does prostitution, one guy does whatever it is may be, you know, the, the bank heists, it's the same thing. This is what they've done. They have divvied up pieces of the economy, and he has bought the loyalty, quote-unquote, of these people by allowing them access to corruption opportunities through oil, currency manipulation, um, taking importing food at, a, at an inflated prices from abroad, making a, a kickback commission off the inflated price, and then taking a piece of those food and commercial goods and reselling them in the private market for a profit on top of it. Um, these are the sorts of uh, narco-trafficking. I mean, this is a, a, a government or a regime that government officials in the security sector actually will um, protect a drug shipment using the power of the state, um, again, for a commission. So uh, we get there by this by you put people in charge of the oil industry that know nothing about oil, they know about stealing. You put people in charge of uh, the mining industry that know nothing about the industry, they just know about stealing. And you put enough people in charge of this over a period of time, you destroy an economy. And, and that's what's happened, and that's why we, we reached the point that we have today. Are you surprised that the Venezuelan people have uh, only until now managed amidst this extraordinary humanitarian crisis caused by their own government? 
Well, they're resilient people. Uh, they've managed in various different ways. Some are un facing, facing almost starvation level nutrition. Uh, we've seen the images depending on others have just left the country. We have over 3 million have left already. If current trends continue, another 2 million will leave. Um, but um, so, um, and again, I mean, we, we say managed. I mean, they've, they've faced extraordinary pressures up to this point. Um, and I think it's just been exacerbated in the last year and a half. What kind of government blocks humanitarian assistance to its own people? A criminal enterprise. I mean, that's what this is, ultimately. The, and let me explain. The reason why they block humanitarian aid and why he's denied a humanitarian crisis is because they do use food and medicine as a tool of leverage over the population. So as an example, there's this program they call the CLAP program. And it, it's not necessarily luxury items, but it's basic food stuff that they provide. To have that, you have to have an identification card. And with that identification card, when they say there's elections, you have to show up with that card. You have to vote. And by the way, they know how you vote over there. Um, and so not only do you have to vote, you have to vote the right way, and then you get food and medicine for your family. And if you don't vote the right way, or you don't vote at all, then you don't get the food and the, and that your family needs. And so if there was humanitarian aid available, people would be less dependent on them and on that program. And, and that's one of the ways they've used that. And so obviously their fear is the inability to use even that little bit amount of food as leverage over the population. Uh, is a threat to the regime. So that, that's why he's willing to do what he's doing. A lot of people here follow this, but could you explain, just for those who maybe haven't been tracking it as carefully as you, uh, why Juan Guaido is legitimate and Mr. Maduro is not at this stage of the Venezuelan constitutional process? And by the way, when I met Juan Guaido in Peru at the Summit of the Americas, I am confident without any doubt that he had no idea he would find himself in this position. This is not someone who's been working his way up to the spot. But under their constitution, you've got to go way back, but ultimately uh, Maduro called an early and illegitimate election for, to be reelected, and he did so because he thought, and rightfully, that he could manipulate the outcome. Um, so imagine an election in which all the people who have any chance to beat you are not allowed to run, uh, where you control all the means of communication in the country, where you have stacked the vote-counting entity with your loyalists, um, I'd be pretty confident in an election cycle like that as well. And that's what they did. And that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't win this election. He rigs this election. And so when he swears in in January, his term as presidency is not legitimate. He's swearing into a term that's not even constitutional. Under the Venezuelan constitution, when there's a vacancy in the office of president, uh, it is the president of the National Assembly who, who, who fills that role in an interim basis until new uh, and legitimate elections can be called to fill the void. And so he finds himself as the president of the National Assembly at a time when all of this happens and it all came together and, and he uh, you know, finds himself in this role and he's made it abundantly clear publicly he has no interest in running himself. And, and I always tell people when you see the Venezuelan opposition, there's no such thing as the opposition. It's a conglomeration of various political parties, all of whom will field their own candidates very soon in the new free election. But right now they're unified in the notion that you need to have a free and new election. Um, but he doesn't intend to be one of those candidates. Which, uh, so I think it's, uh, it, it's really been a phenomenon to watch, sort of where history finds the man, and he's, he's, I, I still marvel at his bravery. Because he, even today, they've announced they're investigating him on how does he make a living and how is he feeding his family. But what's the other thing they do? They bureaucratize repression. So rather than just go in and grab him, what they're trying to do is create sort of the appearance that whatever happens to him is the result of some investigation or legal process. I mean, that, that just, uh, don't, nobody will believe it anymore. But that, uh, 
Those are the threats he faces every day. Senator, do you believe a lot of members of Mr. Maduro's government are looking for a way out? I don't believe that. I know that. Um, some have already sent their families abroad. Others, uh, put yourself, I would say, you know, there are six people that are holding him up right now. Uh, the defense minister, the head of the army, the Navy, Air Force, uh, the National Guard, and then the sort of the Joint Chiefs head, six people. And so you're them. They know Maduro is incompetent. They know he can't turn this country around. They know, but they fear the opposition. They think if these guys take over, they're going to purge the military and they're going to put all six of us in jail. And so they're stuck between that fear and the reality that they know where the rank and file of their subordinates are. And if they order the rank and file to fire on the people or to do something, they won't do it. And some event is soon, at some point, going to force them to try to decide whether or not to carry out an order that, A, they don't want to carry out potentially because of the repercussions, and B, that they know their rank and file won't carry out. So they're sort of in this game here that they're trying to figure out how to walk this tightrope. So a lot of people say the military is loyal to Maduro. There's a difference between soldiers in a barrack not rebelling and soldiers in the barrack saying, look, I'm willing to do the marches and chant the things, but if you call on me to do things like fire upon my neighbors and family members, I'm not going to do it. Because, by the way, the rank-and-file soldiers do not come from the connected or wealthy class. They, they, these are people that come from working class and poor families. So when, if they fire, they'll be firing on their neighbors. There are plenty of soldiers and National Guardsmen and even police officers in Venezuela whose parents, whose spouses, and potentially whose neighbors are right in those crowds that they're supposed to be oppressing or looking at. These, these military leaders, they know that while they give out the appearance of loyalty, if called upon to do certain things, the rank and file are not going to do it. And at that point, it all collapses because everyone will figure out, but no one wants to be the first one to go. So I think they want a way out. They just don't know what that way out looks like. They are fearful of the uh, opposition. They think they're going to jail. They think the military is going to be purged. Some people are going to go to jail. But I would say this. There are off-ramps that exist. The administration has made that clear publicly and privately. They won't be there forever. And there are off-ramps, but we also know where their assets are. So if you own a little farm in Costa Rica or you've got a bunch of money parked somewhere, they know where it is, and they're going to get to it. So people will have to make a decision here fairly soon about uh, what side of that equation they want to be on and which, which risk do they want to run. But, uh, but to answer your question, yes, I think they, they wish they had a way out. They don't know what it is, and right now they fear Maduro more than they do the opposite. I should say they, they fear what could happen under the opposition more than they do staying with Maduro. But that calculus could literally change at any second or moment. So Mr. Maduro has said that the U.S. is undertaking a form of intervention in his country by trying to deliver assistance to starving people. Could we just talk for a minute about who's intervening in Venezuela and how? Cuba comes to mind, China comes to mind, Russia comes to mind. But yeah. would you just be able to give us a I, landscape I put those tour? in three separate categories. Yes, the Chinese want to get paid. They owed a bunch of money, and they want to get paid. And that's why they've got dialogue with both sides of the equation. But ultimately, they're owed over $20 billion, and therefore the guy who's going to pay them. Um, and right now, they've got a contract with Maduro, but if he's out, so far, as long as we get paid, that's what they want. Right now, they're getting paid in, petrol, they're getting paid in oil. They're not getting paid in cash. Um, the second is the Russians. The Russians, in addition to being owed money, have a series of, of uh, exploration leases and rights and concessions that they've gained, and they want to protect those. Uh, every oil and energy company in the world's future depends on access to uh, exploration rights. 
And uh, that's their primary focus. And then secondary to it is that it gives them sort of geopolitical presence in the Western Hemisphere. That They feel like they have an outpost that gives them some voice on what's happening in the region and allows Putin to project himself as a global power with global reach. The Cubans get about over a billion dollars a year of cash in a country that has no cash for their, the, what they do best, and that is repress people. I mean, bottom line is that the Cubans run their entire intelligence and repression operation. And one of the reasons why there's this loyalty, quote unquote, from its senior military officials is they're all spied on by the Cubans, every single one of them. And, and you've seen a massive purge of hundreds of military officers in Venezuela who have been arrested, all on the basis of collection that the Cubans have identified and turned them in. So there's that element to it. But I would just say, anytime a leader of a country's entire protective detail, meaning all their bodyguards are foreigners, <laughs> that tells you they don't trust their own people. It's pretty indicative of, of where we stand on some of this. And, and literally all the protective staff around Maduro is, is not Venezuelan, primarily Cuban and maybe some private contractors as well. So if the Maduro regime were to go, what would the blowback be on the Cuban system? This is really a Cuban beachhead in South America. Well, they would, lose, would, that they would lose privilege access to oil and petroleum. Um, that's the first. They would lose their strongest ally at regional bodies, certainly in this hemisphere and, and probably in the world. They would lose over a billion some odd dollars a year that they get for their services of helping spy and, 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 and repress people. And, um, and I mean, the Cuban services range from training them how to do crowd control to how to do influence operations and discredit people online and, and the whole gamut. I mean, that, that is what they advise them. So they would lose that. It would be a dramatic blow to, their, uh, to, their, to the regime in Cuba to lose access not just to that revenue, but to the, uh, the favorable terms for oil. How about the fallout that we've seen so far during the Madeira years, during the Chavez years, on democratic allies of the United States in Latin America? I'm thinking principally about Colombia, but also Brazil. This wave of Venezuelan desperation that has flowed out of this country has impacted the democracies. So when people ask me, what does this have to do with the United States? Look, number one, I think we always should be on the side of democracy because democracy is morally superior to dictatorship and tyranny. But the second is it's in our national interest. Um, if you look, anything that's in our own hemisphere, and this is no longer an issue of Venezuela, it is a million and growing number of migrants now in Colombia are putting tremendous stress on the Colombian healthcare system and Colombian society. We've seen the same play out increasingly in Peru, somewhat in Brazil, a lot in Ecuador. So what happens is, as these migratory flows continue, it puts stresses on governments, particularly in Colombia, that are already facing other significant challenges. In that border region alone, between Colombia and Venezuela, you have over a million some odd vulnerable people, some of whom become uh, prime targets for narco-trafficking networks to prey on uh, and, and so forth. And then the societal pressures. We've seen the emergence of, of some you know, xenophobic-style blowbacks in Ecuador after a murder that occurred there. So the pressure puts on these countries threatens to create instability, not just in Venezuela, in Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Brazil, in a way that it suddenly becomes a regional crisis. And, and any time you have mass migrations and regional crisis in your own hemisphere, it's eventually going to impact you pretty dramatically, not to mention has a direct impact on our counter-narcotic efforts in Colombia that over the last three years has seen record coca production, much of that cocaine ultimately headed to U.S. streets. So there's a lot of reasons to understand why this has, or, or to explain why this has direct implication on our national interests,
as a country because a hemispheric uh, South, uh, continental South American collapse of multiple key partners would ultimately impact this directly and immediately. And it already started to. There's an argument out there that uh, democracy around the world is in retreat, that strong men are on the march, that uh, often authoritarian systems can deliver higher economic growth of the kind you've seen in China. How do you think the Venezuela crisis plays into this big global question around the future of democracy? Well, I don't think they can make that argument in Venezuela. Um, but, but it is, the, uh, I think, one of the core attributes of this new era is, is the argument, first of all, autocrats go through the rituals of democracy. They have elections. Uh, these elections, of course, when you control the media, when in the case of Russia, where your opponents die, uh, some fall out of win windows, some are poisoned, but they die. So when your opponents are either dead or in prison, you control the media, and ultimately you are able to somewhat influence the way the votes are counted. That's not a democracy. That's just a show, and uh, it has the facade of democracy, but it's not real. And you've seen autocrats around the world sort of specialize in this. So they portray themselves as a democracy. That may not be the case in China, but in places like Turkey and, 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 uh, and Russia and some other places, that's the case. Then um, the fundamental argument you have happening around the world is, and one of the biggest risks, is autocratic governments going to people and saying, look at the Western world, look at Europe, look at the US, look at the chaos going on, you know, yellow vests in France and all the division in American politics. Look what we have been able to deliver for people in our country and, um, of course, the price of it is less freedom and less control of who your leaders are. What they don't tell you is that the fact that they control society means they can also control their own fissures and, and people's ability to express themselves and their issues. So the reason why democracies look chaotic and messy is because people are free enough to disagree openly and, and vibrantly. Uh, in, in these autocratic countries, you cannot. And so you, you wind up dead or in prison. But that is a defining feature of this new era, and that is the argument between autocrats and democracy about which model moving forward is the best. And, and it is a, a significant concern to me that, uh, led by the Chinese and others, there's this argument being made that you can achieve sort of democratic uh, levels of prosperity without democracy. And it's something we should be very concerned about, because I think for the first time, probably since the end of the Second World War, certainly, the major, over 50% of global GDP is now produced in autocratic countries. On the other hand, though, back to Venezuela, the Venezuelan economy is half the size it was. Inflation is approaching a million percent or more. I mean, this is an example for the economic underperformance of autocratic control. Yeah, again, look, I, I don't like socialism. I don't think socialism was ever going to work, uh, certainly not the way they, the model they've pursued. But it's overlaid by, on top of socialism, it's overlaid by just the most incredible level of corruption and thievery uh, in mind. I mean, there's some, that's a high standard. I mean, we've got some terrible thieves around the world that have stolen money. But even from a historical perspective, the amount they have stolen and, and stripped of that country is extraordinary. I mean, there's just, I don't know of any contemporary um, uh, example that, 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 that you could stack up to it. And, and that's been a huge part of this on top of everything else. Can we talk about next steps, and then we'll open it up. Um, what does America need to do just in the next few weeks? And then could you talk about the longer-term kinds of support uh, a more democratic Venezuela will need? Well, after this I, I think it's a mistake to view this as a U.S. action with Venezuela. It, it is not. It is an international effort. And this is not one of those coalitions that, you know, the U.S. started it, and then we kind of forced everybody to be a part of. One of the, on the international stage, 
the most active leaders in this endeavor has been the Lima Group. The Lima Group, made up of 14 countries, not including the United States, but include Canada and all of Venezuela's neighbors, are, have been the most active on this effort for a year and a half now, by far. The OAS has been revitalized as an institution that's actually playing a meaningful role in this. You've seen a growing over half the European countries have now signed on as well. Every day some new country somewhere signs on to this endeavor. So this is truly, and, and, and the U.S. isn't really working in them. These countries are coming there willingly and, and agreeing with that. So it is, an, and I think that's important. Let me first understand, them. what is the Maduro strategy? Maduro strategy is to buy time with a fake negotiation or whatever to, A, get the opposition to divide, and B, get the rest of us to sort of move on and pay attention to some other crisis and forget about Venezuela and forget about what's happening. There. That's his plan. That's, that's the model he's trying to follow. It won't work this time. Uh, this process we're on is irreversible. None of these countries are going to come back around. There's no way you get 50 countries to re-recognize you after what's happened. So that's just a fact. As far as the next steps, my number one and number two priority right now are getting food and medicine to people who are starving to death, to infants who are dying in hospitals, to people who are waiting for HIV, AIDS medications and antivirals, that if they don't get, they will die. And that's being blocked. That's our number one priority by every way possible and to continue to call attention to the global community about how these you know, criminals are standing in the way of that being delivered. The second is to continue to find ways to support the, uh, the legitimate government of Juan Guaido to get the resources they need to begin to, to frame out what a recovery plan is going to look like for Venezuela's future. Their, their electric grid alone could cost upwards of $50 billion to rebuild. It's funny, the other day he was having a press conference at his uh, palace or whatever they call it, and, and wherever he's at, I don't know, maybe he was there, I think he was, and he was saying there's no crisis in Venezuela, and the lights went out in the middle of his press conference. Uh, so uh, in the middle of the conference, the lights went out. So that whole grid has to be rebuilt. There's a lot of work to be done, and ultimately the future belongs to the Venezuelan people. It belongs to them. This is their fight. This is their cause. We are supporting them. And so I think it's a mistake to say, what is America going to do next? What America should continue to do is support the legitimate democratic aspirations of the people of Venezuela. We take our direction from them. What I know this administration will do is continue to hunt down the money that these individuals have stolen from the people of Venezuela and preserve it so that it will be there for the, for the people of Venezuela. And frankly, there will come a point, I believe, when there will be secondary sanctions against businesses or countries who are helping Maduro try to evade these sanctions. Thank you, Senator. We're going to open it up. Uh, Anna is going to appear to moderate the session. We have a few minutes for questions. I think we have some mics going around. If you could please identify yourself with your name, your organizational affiliation, and please keep your question in question form and not remarks. We have two panelists, and that is it. Um, all right, the gentleman in the back with the tie. With the tie. Yes, right. I know. Which sorry. <laughs> that was, I know. I know. That was very. With a, with a, is that I red? Know. Sorry, I haven't had my Cuban coffee today, sir. So. Skinny red tie. Skinny red tie. There you go. Got it. Uh, Senator, thank you for coming. My name is Mark Dieger. I'm with the Heritage Foundation here. And I wanted to ask both of you, what do you recommend the United States should do in regards to what happens to Maduro and his, I guess, cronies once the situation has been changed once they have been deposed? What happened to That's them? That's a tough question because some of these people have done horrible things. And so this is where pragmatism in foreign policy is so critical. There may come an opportunity fairly soon, I hope, where some really bad people have done some terrible things are going to be willing to 
step aside in exchange for some level of guarantee. Uh, now, there's things we can guarantee and things we can't. We can, we can, the U.S., for example, can lift sanctions. What we can't shield you from is the International Criminal Court or things of this nature. But, but there are things that, that there may come an opportunity, and those off-ramps still exist for some... I mean, that's the ideal scenario, is that these guys would just get up and go somewhere and then live there for the rest of their lives. And, it, and it's terrible that, they, that some, some, not all, there are some that will have to face justice, that some may never face justice for what they did wrong. But I still think that is preferable to a bloodbath or to the continued suffering of millions of people. And that's just a tough decision. My bigger fear is that those off-ramps don't exist forever. There is a point of no return. There does come a moment, and one of those moments is coming up right now. It is a violation of international law for, for the armed forces of a country to deny the delivery of humanitarian assistance to civilians. And that is what they are doing, and that's what they are, seem postured to do. And if they do that, they are violating international law. And, and how those five or six key military leaders respond over the next week and a half to that question is going to determine where and how they and their families will spend the rest of their lives. It, it, this is the most, most important decision they have ever made in their life. And, and they're, they're about to be forced to make it. And, uh, and I think it's important to understand that there does come a point where these windows of opportunity for them close. If you told me tomorrow that the price of Venezuela having a better future is that five or six terrible human beings get to move to Cuba or South Africa or Moscow uh, for the rest of their lives, I think it's unfortunate that some of them may not face justice, but if it saves the lives of millions of people, um, you know, that's one of those very difficult trade-offs. But there comes a point where you cross the line and that opportunity won't be there for you. And, um, and, and that's what they're going to have to decide. All right, right here in the front, front corner. Senador Carolina, para NTN24. Se cumplen ya tres semanas desde que Guaidó juró como presidente encargado. El objetivo es lograr un escenario para conseguir elecciones libres y democráticas. Ese es el, en la agenda, está en la agenda. Sin embargo, el punto uno de la agenda es conseguir que Maduro deje el poder. Han pasado tres semanas. ¿Qué pasa si esto se prolonga semanas, meses o años? ¿Cuál es el plan B ahora mismo? Bueno, primero, a no le corresponde a Estados Unidos tener un plan B. A nosotros estamos para apoyar, and I'm going to answer it in English, because the question is, what, what's the plan B? Since Maduro hasn't left, it's already been three weeks. Well, dos cosas. Primero, esto es una pelea del pueblo de Venezuela, y nosotros lo estamos apoyando. Así que nosotros no vamos a determinar cuál es el plan B. Son ellos, pero yo no creo que tiene que haber un plan E. Plan B, tres semanas... Es muy largo por lo que han sufrido, pero en la historia del mundo es un corto plazo. No es, no es fácil cambiar un sistema de un día al otro que todavía está apoderado de armas y está dispuesto a oprimir, a matar, encarcelar y exilar a personas. Pero esto, esto no se puede revertir. Esto más nunca va a ser como era antes. Esos cincuenta y pico de países que están apoyando a Guadalajara no van a cambiar ahora a reconocer a Maduro. No existe, él no tiene futuro como líder. Aquí lo que se está determinando es de qué manera va a salir del país. Pero que va a salir no hay duda. Él no tiene escape de esto y, y con, en diferencia a las, a las otras eh, ocasiones en las cuales la gente se olvidaba. Ya esto ha llevado, ha llevado a un nivel de atención muy alto. Nosotros vamos a seguir apoyando lo que esté pidiendo el gobierno interino. On the plan B part, I would just say that it doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to the Venezuelan people through their legitimate government to determine what the future holds. And we're there to support them in whatever they need and ask for. But there really isn't a plan B. There doesn't have to be. There's only one plan, and that is Maduro leaves. And the only thing being debated is what is the format in which he leaves, what are the conditions under which he leaves, when does he leave, and where does he go. 
Uh, does he leave uh, as a prisoner or does he leave as, a, as an exile? But that he will leave, there's no doubt. With, this is an irreversible process we are on now. Okay? There is no way the U.S. or 50-some-odd countries are going to re-recognize Maduro after everything that's happened. So I would just say three weeks is too long. But in the, in the, in the course of world history, three weeks is a blip on the screen. These things sometimes take longer because as long as you're willing to jail murder, and murder people, You'd be surprised at how long people have been able to hold on. But this is an irreversible route. There is no way that he survives, and there is no way that this goes back to the way it was. Uh, he will not be able to buy time to escape this time. There's just too much attention now. And he translates its own questions. I love this. Thanks for doing my job for me, Senator. <laughs> um, the gentleman right here in the front, do we have, um, where is the mic? The gentleman right here in the front. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wore my tie today, too. Thank you. Appreciate uh, Roger that. Roger Noriega from American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Senator, um, I know hypothetical questions are very difficult, but both the uh, President, interim President Guaido and the uh, Supreme Court, uh, legitimate Supreme Court of Venezuela, have uh, talked about uh, the need to re uh, deliver humanitarian aid, and the Supreme Court has authorized for example, a humanitarian corridor and called upon the international con uh, community to consider that option. Uh, if good people were within the military were to act to go in and try to bring the food in and they encountered uh, resistance from the very bad people who have not taken us up on the offer of amnesty, what would, the, what would you speculate the U.S. reaction or the international reaction would be? Well... First of all, a lot of time, been asked a lot of questions. That's not your question, but a lot of people ask about uh, ruling out use of military force. Listen, the United States has a right anywhere on this planet to act in our national security interest, especially if American or American lives are, are threatened. That's the first thing. And just understand, it's not unique to Venezuela. Anywhere on this planet where our national the security interests are threatened and or Americans are threatened, the U.S. has a right to react to that. And, and that's, that's no different in the case of Venezuela. Number two, it's not my decision to make. I'm not the commander-in-chief. I can only echo to you what the president has told me personally and what the, his administration has said publicly and repeatedly, and that is there is literally no option off the table uh, with regards to what this, government, uh, this administration is willing to do to see this through. The third is a, a, an international humanitarian corridor is something that makes sense to me, but it would require international partners willing to do that. And that doesn't happen from one day to the next. It takes time to convince people that we're at the stage where that needs to happen. And it would have to be international effort. Right now, what does exist is, is a significant amount and growing amount of humanitarian aid on the Colombian side of the Colombian-Venezuelan border that is ready to go at a moment's notice to be given to non-governmental organizations inside of Venezuela so they can distribute. And right now, the only thing keeping that from happening is three cargo containers and some barricades on a, on a, on a bridge in one of the border crossings. Uh, that, people of Venezuela are acutely aware that food and medicine for their children and their families awaits just on the other side of that border and that the only thing standing in the way are a handful of leaders in Venezuela. That pressure only continues to build and at some point that will come to a break point and it's when the military is going to have to decide if they are going to violate international law and block that from happening. Are they going to fire on Venezuelans who come across that bridge and start physically removing those barriers to allow the aid to come in? Are they going to, are they going to, do they really believe that their soldiers whose own families are starving are, are not going to allow that to come in? 
So uh, I, I think this is going to reach a critical mass here sooner than people think. And by the way, that's just one point of entry. There are multiple places by which this aid can be delivered. So this will come to a head. And, and um, again, this is a, a new effort. It's three weeks old. It takes some time to build. But it only gets worse for Maduro from here, not better. And, uh, and I think there, the moment may come when there's an international coalition waiting to provide aid. And, and we hope that they would be able to do so uh, without needing any security beyond what you would normally provide because the people called upon to stop them refuse to do so. We have time for one more question um, right here in the front. Right here. Wait, can you wait one quick second? Sorry, to the microphone. Thank you. No, you're fine. Thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Gabriela Peroso from BPI TV. Eh, digital media from Venezuela. Eh, eh, senador, usted ha sido uno de los, de los que más ha investigado el tema de las mafias, del narcotráfico, que por lo menos lo ha explicado muy bien a Estados Unidos. Y hay quienes les preocupa que esto no se trata de un problema político, sino de mafias, que eh, la decisión no está en Nicolás Maduro, está por encima de él porque ya hay narcotráfico y hay mafias. ¿Cómo enfrentar eh, ese escenario de amnistía cuando no se está negociando con políticos, sino con personas que son criminales, que incluso no tienen el poder? Está por encima de ellos, los rusos, los chinos y toda la mafia. Yeah. Uh, I don't think mafia needs any translation. So, uh, uh, but the question was, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, isn't it difficult to deal with this when you're not dealing with political leaders and talk of amnesty, you're talking about dealing with organized crime figures and the Maduro crime family. Le contesto primero en español. Sin duda, hay individuos, yo he dicho que no, yo no creo que puedan eh, recibir ningún tipo de amnistía de parte de Estados Unidos. Yo no controlo lo que hagan ellos allá, pero a, de, a nivel de los cargos federales que enfrentan algunos de ellos, hay individuos como los Dado Cabello, que no tiene, para él no existe futuro, simplemente en una cárcel. Yo no me explico como una persona, yo no me explico como en un país donde están, se están muriendo de la hambre. Maduro y Cabello pesan tanto, porque están, parecen refrigeradores. I was just saying, I don't understand how in a country where people are starving, both Maduro and this guy Cabello, they look like refrigerators. I mean, they're, they're huge. And people are dying. I, mean, I know it comes off as funny, but it's true. I mean, just think, there have never been a larger disconnect between a starving population and these overweight uh, future cardiac patients. So the, the, going back to the, the, the pregunta que usted me hace, es difícil, ¿no? Pero sin duda que a nivel militar, en otros lados, existe una oportunidad de algunos de ellos limpiarse un poco, no tanto de lo que han hecho, depende de lo que han hecho. Y, y, yo, y eso es algo que hay que eh, pensar, porque esa es una puerta que se cierra en algún momento, si cruzan algunas líneas adicionales. Pero si la alternativa es eso, pero, y evitar un baño de sangre, sufrimiento de, de más personas, a veces en la historia del mundo hay que hacer decisiones muy difíciles de esa, de esa, de esa naturaleza. Um, you know, I said this earlier, it's difficult, you know, when there are some people that will not be able to avail themselves of any sort of guarantees by the U.S. or anybody else because of the things they've done. There are others who have yet to cross a line who still have an opportunity to do it, but that won't be there forever. And I would just say, listen, no one is more idealistic about these things than I am, at least in Congress, but I also understand that at some times in the history of humanity, you have to, you are forced to choose between two less than ideal options and you have to take the one that is least bad. And in this particular case, if the price of avoiding a bloodbath or a civil war or continued suffering is that a handful of really bad people who stole a lot of money get to move somewhere else and, and, and live, um, that's certainly preferable to a bloodbath. But 
That's an opportunity they have to take with concrete actions. With concrete actions. That's, a, that's an off-ramp that doesn't exist forever. And the reverse is true. And that is, if you don't take that off-ramp, we know where your assets are, we know where you've st stolen and put the money, and you're not going to have that if, if you continue to stick with Maduro. In addition to all the other challenges you're going to face personally, your family is going to face the loss of all those assets in future generations. So, look, I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. We're going to wake up one morning and find out that uh, some military leaders have recognized the rightful government and Maduro's on a plane to somewhere. Uh, but, you know, we have to be prepared for that not being the case as well. Sorry, guys, I think we're a little bit out of time. Um, Senator Rubio, on behalf of the Heritage Foundation and our co-hosts, IRI, we thank you very much for your remarks and your leadership on this very important issue. If everyone, you could please join me in thanking the Senator and Dan Twining for this great event. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.